Uh, you can turn over in your Bibles. Actually, uh, we're going to be in Second uh, Peter, but you can turn over in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 21. I want to read out of John's revelation here, the revelation of our Lord to John. And one thing that we, as Christians living in this world, I think a lot of times we forget the fact that our Lord is returning for us. Uh, that should be a glorious thought. I don't know about you and your life, but as I was uh, leaving the grandkids, and I always get the last 24 hours is just a very melancholy time for me back there. Everybody in the family, what's wrong with you? What's wrong with you? And uh, I'm just kind of down having to leave and come back. And not that, you know, love it here too, but they're family. You know, what can I say? And they're, every time you go and visit them, they're a little more grown up. And you're thinking, well, what are you missing out on? But the, the neat thing I was thinking as we were flying back, I thought, you know, when we finally are reunited with our Lord, there'll be no more parting ways <laughs> with anyone. We'll be eternally with him and with our loved ones in the Lord forever, for all eternity. And uh, that's something to look forward to. I want to read uh, Revelation chapter 21, uh, beginning in verse 1, 1 to 4, and then down at the end there, 22 to 27. It says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them. And they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there will no longer be any death, and there will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. Then down verse 22, I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. And the city has no need of sun or of the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it in the daytime, for there will be no night there. Its gates will never be closed, and they will bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it, and nothing unclean, and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. You can turn over to Second Peter chapter 3. That just gives you a little kind of preview of some of the things that we're going to be able to one day enjoy as we enter into the Lord's presence when He comes and returns for us. 
Now, Peter here is closing out this little book. We've been in this little epistle for about 15 studies now, I think. And I just want to read the last four verses for us because that's going to be the text for us today. And it sets us up well for communion as well. Uh, His final words, his final exhortations to the, the people there and to us as well. Verse 14, 2 Peter chapter 3 says, Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace, and count the patience of the Lord as salvation. Just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them on these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which, are, which the ignorant and unstable twist in their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace in knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Peter here, in his closing words, he gives us some exhortations. I want to talk to you today about expecting, being ready, and also growing in grace in the Lord. His final words here are very important. And he closes out there in verse Begins in verse 14, he says, therefore. In other words, I've written everything up to this point for this purpose. If you miss everything else, don't miss this. I don't know if you've ever been by the bedside of someone who's dying. I have several times. And usually within the last few hours, depending on their medication or whatever they're under. But sometimes... They'll squeeze your hand and they'll want you to come closer. And they'll say something. And whenever that's happened in a room with a family member or I've seen other people deal with that kind of a situation, you could hear a pin drop in that room. Why? Because of the importance of the words of someone who is about to enter into eternity. They're dying words. What are they saying? And here, Peter isn't too far off from his own death, remember. He knew it's coming. He knew he was going to be martyred. And so he, he wants to basically instill in them some words that will encourage them, exhort them, help them to remind themselves, remember certain things that are of importance. And I think the same things are important for us today as Peter writes these words. So he says, therefore, and then look at the next word, beloved. All right, it's kind of a term of endearment there. He uses that word over and over when he regards brothers and sisters in Christ. Sometimes you hear people in churches speak of other brothers and sisters in Christ, and they use everything but that word. (laughs) I'll tell you, I've heard Christians called all kinds of things. But we shouldn't follow that example. We should count our brothers and sisters as beloved. And then he says there in verse 14, since you are waiting for these. Well, waiting for what? You've got to go back. 
Whenever you see the word therefore, I was always told you, you go back and you find out why it's therefore. And from 11 of chapter, uh, chapter 3, verse 11, all the way down to verse 13, he's talking about all these things that are going to be, or verse 10, these, the, the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. The heavens and the earth will pass away. Um, they'll be burned up. They'll be dissolved. Okay, all those things. And he says in verse 11, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Waiting, expecting, anticipating the coming of the Lord. I don't know about you, but I think about that day a lot. I wonder if I'm going to die first or the Lord will actually come back and we'll be raptured out of here. Either way, it's going to be a glorious day. But I often wonder sometimes when I'm doing things that maybe I shouldn't be doing, what if the Lord came back now? Not that he wouldn't still take me, but it's kind of like a, a child that's misbehaving. And you come in the room and you say, what are you doing? No, nothing. <laughs> you know immediately what? They're doing something they should not be doing, right? And, and the idea here is that since we're waiting For the Lord's return, we know with certainty that he will return for us. The word of God clearly tells us that. And since we're waiting for all this to happen, he uses the word diligent. He says, be diligent. It means kind of hasten to do something, to exert oneself, to make sure that you're you're using all the effort that you have to do whatever he's going to tell us to do. When someone has diligence in their job, there's a thoroughness to what they do. Our beloved brother, Bob Murata, has a thoroughness to everything he does. Ask Ken and I. I mean, it's just amazing how God has gifted him in that way. And it's not, you know, I mean, for Ken and I, it's like, yeah, okay, we need to do this in the church. Okay, well, let's do it. And Bob will lay out a a strategy, and he'll lay out a plan. Well, wait, have you thought about this? Have you thought about that? Have you thought about this? Have you thought? And I'm thinking, oh, my goodness. But you know what? It makes a lot of sense. You don't want some live wire out there making decisions for the body of Christ. You, You want men who are able to thoughtfully think through things. And and see, that's the idea, being diligent about something. Putting in maximum effort. And we're all diligent in some way about various things. Usually it's things we like. Some people are diligent about keeping the the NFL scores or the, the, the baseball scores. And they know all the material. And they can tell you, recite facts to you. Just blow your mind. Other people are into airplanes. And they can tell you all about that. They're diligent to study that. Other people are into arts and crafts and music, and they're diligent in their their giftings and their interests. But here, this is something we all need as believers to be diligent in our behavior. And so he points out here a couple things, and he basically summarizes it and says, you know what, you need to behave yourself. (laughs) He says, be diligent to behave yourself. Be diligent to be found By him, when he returns, to be what? Without spot or blemish. One commentator said, without spot refers to 
the kind of character that you have, the kind of people that you, the person that you really are. Um, over in, in James chapter 1, it talks about this. James, James chapter 1, verse 27. Tells us very clearly right here in this text. Look at verse 26, James 1, 26. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself, what? Unstained by the world. To be without spot refers to your character. I think it's so important that we understand that the world definitely is watching us. Be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish. That word has the idea of your reputation, not just your character, but your reputation. That kind of righteous and virtuous people that others perceive us to be. Because we are. Not because you're putting on a show. My wife gets nervous sometimes because when I preach, sometimes I'm transparent about certain things. And, you know, I got to guard that because what you see is what you get. It's just, you know, that's what it is. And sometimes I'll use something as an illustration. I think back and I'm thinking, boy, I probably shouldn't have been that transparent. Not that it's, you know, anything wrong, but it's just maybe look, make other people look bad as well. So you got to be careful with that. But. See, the idea of being without spot deals with your character, the kind of of people believers really are. The, The idea of being blameless deals with your reputation. The idea that what other people perceive you to be. We all have a reputation one way or the other. And it's very clear that he says here, you know what, be diligent, work hard to be found by him without spot or blemish. And I thought, you know, you might say, well, I thought it was all about grace and just kind of kicking back and waiting for the Lord return. That's not that's not the case in the Christian life throughout the word of God. We're told we're instructed to work hard to make sure that we're in the faith. Don't just assume it. We're called Words like overcomers, those who persevere. Those don't don't sound like words that describe somebody who's just relaxing, that's retired and just kind of kicking back and waiting for the Lord to come back. I mean, if you're persevering in something, that, that has an idea that you're putting some work into it. There's some diligence involved. If you're an overcomer, then you must have to be working hard to overcome something. Remember and never forget the idea that salvation is a free gift. That's true. That it's by grace through faith. That's true. But don't ever forget that when Jesus described the way of salvation, he didn't describe it as an easy path. He described it as what? Narrow. 
he described it as hard. It's hard to get through that gate, that narrow gate. You don't waltz through the gate with a bunch of stuff hanging on you. You just can't do that. When we were back east, we had to go through a, a turnstile. When we went to one of the uh, baseball games down there, the Pittsburgh Pirates beat the Nationals, which was great because we were all Pirates fans. And Crystal had bought Will and Mason and I tickets for this game for Father's Day. And so we all went together and we went to the Navy Yard and we parked. And you can go out this one gate that's right on the Potomac there, really beautiful. But going out, there's a turnstile. It's a secure area. And you can't, you know, you can't fit two people in this turn. You've got to go through one at a time. And he said that, Will said that he used to be able to come back from the ballpark and just use his card and go through that same turnstile and come back through the gate to get back onto the yard. And then he would hand his card to his child and she would run it through and she would come through. Well, the last time they went to a ball game, they all got back to the, the Navy Yard and they tried to do that and it wouldn't work. <laughs> they figured it out. Hey, you can't be doing that. And so we had to walk all the way around to the front because that gate was restricted. But when we were going out that gate, we had certain things we were carrying. It was kind of tough to get through that turnstile. That's the idea. That's the idea that Jesus was describing when he describes the way of salvation. It's not just you love Jesus and confess your sins and that's it. We're called to to struggle with our faith. We're called to to make sure that we're in the faith. And I think that's what his intentions are. Be diligent to be found in him without spot or blemish. And then he says there, and be at peace. Be at peace. It implies a prosperity or even a a well-being. Over in, in John chapter 16, we know this verse well. But Jesus says this. He says, I have said these things to you that in me, in himself, you ha- may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have what? Overcome the world. And his implication there is if you're in me and I overcome the world, you're going to overcome the world too. That's why we're referred to as overcomers. But when you think of being at peace with someone, first of all, we should be at peace with God. You should be at peace with your creator. And unfortunately, since birth, we've had this little issue called sin. And that has kind of violated that peace that we had with our creator. And somehow that needs to be fixed. And that's why Jesus came. That's why God sent his son to die as a perfect sacrifice to take upon himself all the sins that he had never committed. He took them upon himself willingly. He went to a cross. He died a cruel death. He was buried and he was raised the third day in victory over sin and death proclaiming that, you know what, now we can have that relationship of peace with God when we come through Christ. We can't have it any other way. And so he says, be diligent, first of all, to be spotless and blameless, and then be diligent to be at peace. I think the second way we can be at peace is is with our brothers and sisters in Christ. To be honest, I mean, sometimes... In churches, there's some weird stuff going on. Odd behavior. You would think that 
it's kind of two families, you know, squirmishing with each other. The Hatfields and the McCoys or something like that. And yet, you know what? As the body of Christ, we're all in the same family, beloved. We all belong to Christ. And so we're called to be at, at peace with one another. So peace with God, but also peace with our brothers and sisters in Christ. And you may be sitting there going, oh, yeah, but you don't know, you know, some of those brothers and sisters, man. They're just, well, it doesn't matter. He doesn't say be at peace if they're nice people, right? I mean, to be honest, there are some Christian people that I don't really care for. They irritate me. And I'm sure you could say the same thing. That's just being open and honest. But that doesn't mean I can't be at peace with them. So we have to remind ourselves of that. And then the third way that we need to be at peace is I think that we need to have a semblance of peace with those who have yet to put their faith and trust in Christ. And by that, I don't mean that we go out and we compromise and we become like the world. We're not called to do that. But so many Christians, I find, go out into the world and it's like, you know, they got a a Bible in one hand and a club in the other. And they're just ready to hammer whoever comes out of the, the woodwork who doesn't know Christ. And frankly, it turns people off. That's, that's not the way to win people to Christ. You see some folks that, you know, they'll get a, a billboard and they'll go picket somewhere or whatever and, and, and kind of act like a fool on the corner and people point at them. And I mean, you know, I don't think that's a proper representation of who we are in Christ. You know, the idea is, is that what I mean to when we say we're at peace, we're never going to be at peace with those who don't know Christ in a literal way. I mean, they're coming from a different moral point of view and everything. I understand that. But what I'm saying is we don't need to go out of our way to be obnoxious to them. We should desire to build a relationship with them to the degree that we can share the word of God with them. And then if they turn a deaf ear to what we were telling them, we're sharing the truth with them, and they say, we don't want to hear it anymore, then fine. Go your own way. But don't just clobber them over the head before you even get to share the word of God with them or, or to, to establish some kind of a relationship with them. You know, there's a, there's a fine, fine balance there. I mean, the truth of the word of God offends people, does it not? When you give people the gospel, generally they don't give you a big hug and say, man, thank you for telling me I'm a sinner. I, man, this is great. No. They reject it. They try to justify themselves. They get the hair on the back of their head up. I mean, they just get into defensive mode. And so we need to be very peaceable with all men, the Word of God says. Not just think because we're Christians and we're part of the, 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 the frozen chosen that you know everybody else is going to hell and, hey, the heck with them. That's not what the Word of God calls us to do. We should be concerned We should desire to be at peace with them. And so, at peace, without spot, blameless. His words there on how to behave. But look at what he says. He also covers how to believe. Look at what he says in verse 15. He says, and count the patience of our Lord as salvation. What in the world does that mean? It's a word of advice. He's telling us here, you know what? I know you're expecting something. 
You're expecting the Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ to come back for you. I get it. You're under trials. You're under persecution. Maybe your, your family's in trouble, your marriage, your finances, your job, whatever. I, I understand that. And boy, that day when Jesus comes back, everything's going to be great. But don't forget, the longer it takes for him to come back, the more opportunity there is for people to be saved. And that's the only reason he's not coming back, to be honest with you. Is there still those who need to be ushered into the kingdom? There are still those who need to taste of salvation. Sometimes we grow impatient with the Lord's return. We grow impatient with the situation we find ourselves in. And God, Peter, through Peter, wants to give us just a word of advice here. You know what? Count that as salvation. The patience of the Lord equals salvation. In so many different ways. Don't lose sight of the fact that the goal that he has for us here on earth is to what? To come to church and to read Bibles and pray and give each other holy hugs and eat food and go home? You really think that's the goal of the church? You really think that that's why he left us here? That's not the reason. He left us here because there's still those unsaved hearts, those unsaved souls that are out there. And the last time I checked, the Bible says the man that wins souls, the one who wins souls is wise. We need to make sure that we don't get too comfortable in our theology and in our doctrine and, and realize, hey, well, yeah, we serve a sovereign God. He's going to work everything out. And then we just kind of sit back and do nothing. That's called complacency. That's, that's a bad attitude to have, especially as a Christian. Because what it does is complacency turns you into basically a spectator. It's like God's got his little people down there on the field, and you're sitting way up in the nosebleed section, and you're saying, huh, I don't need to get involved in that. God's got it all worked out. And the weird thing about God's plan is that he includes us in the plan. And so he wants to make sure that his brothers and sisters in Christ here who are dealing with a lot of obstacles, a lot of tribulations, a lot of problems, a lot of false teachers, a lot of heresies, all that stuff. It would be a blessing to be ushered out of here and to know that everything you're around is true, is pure, is holy. You don't have to question what someone says. You don't have to question their motive. You don't have to question what someone teaches anymore. Nothing. You'll be in a perfect place. I mean, that's ideal. But he says, don't forget... While you're putting up with all that, there's still some people that need to be saved. And I've left you there just for that task. And then he brings up Paul, the apostle, just as our beloved Paul. He admires who Paul is, who also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him by the Holy Spirit. It's the idea. The fact that he is looking at Paul as an example means that he was familiar to some extent with Paul's writings. He knew what Paul had written about. And he says, you know what? I know that it's, it's kind of 
hard for you to be patient here because you're doing with all this stuff. But just remember, as long as the Lord doesn't come back, there's still people that can be saved. And Paul understood that. He wrote to you according to the wisdom that God gave him. He's admiring Paul's writings. But not only that, but he really admires all of Scripture because he also gives him an admonition, admonition there in verse 16. He says, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. Of what matters? You look through any of the letters of Paul, the Apostle Paul, you find him talking about the end times. You find him talking about the return of Christ. You find him talking about the false teachers. All those things he brings up to some degree or another in one of his epistles. And he's just reminding them, you know what? You're not only hearing this from me, you're hearing it from Paul as well. You've already heard it from him. I mean, if someone tells you once to do something, that's, you know, depending on their authority or whatever, that's important. If they tell you twice, maybe there's a little urgency. If they tell you three or four times, maybe you should pay attention and actually do it. That's, that's what Peter's saying here. Hey, I'm not the only one saying this stuff. Our brother Paul said the same thing. In verse 16, it says, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. And then he kind of gives a little commentary here on Paul's teachings. He says, there are some things in those letters that are hard to understand. Notice he doesn't say impossible to understand. He says they're hard to understand. And when they're hard to understand, what happens? He goes on, he says, which the ignorant and the unstable, those false teachers that he's been talking about the whole epistle here, they twist to their own destruction. As they do with the other scriptures as well. So he's putting his own teaching, he's putting the teaching of Paul, and he's putting every other scripture on the same level playing ground. And he's saying, you know what? Sometimes scripture is simply just hard to understand. I think sometimes we think of the Bible. If you ever seen a child's first Bible? You ever seen one of those little books? It's not even a Bible. It's like a couple words and a picture on a page, you know. It's, I mean, you know, but it's their first Bible. And you can read through that and you can kind of get a semblance of maybe who God is and whatever. But it's, it's, it's childish. It's pictures and big words, big font. You know, it's, it's easier for people who are older to read those things. Actually, I kind of like them because it's, you know, you have to fine print. But it, it's kind of silly because it's really not a Bible. Because if it was a Bible, your child would not understand it because <laughs> it's hard to understand. It's difficult to understand certain things within the Word of God. It doesn't just come easy. Now, God has gifted some men and even some women with an extraordinary gift of understanding the Word of God, and they can read a verse and explain it. Just, and then there's others of us who have to work diligently and hard, and we go to people like that, and we say, what does this mean? Okay, that looks like that's what it means. I'm going to go with that. But there's still a little question. Because it's hard. It's difficult to understand. The minute you think you have all your theology figured out, That's a red flag, a big red flag. I mean, for years, 
I was going to a school and, and was taught certain things about the Bible and about salvation. You know, about evangelism. Evangelism and taking a little track and going out to a college campus and grabbing somebody and say, hey, do you know God has a wonderful plan for your life? Really? What's that? Well, let me tell you. And you go through these little four little things and you pray with that person and you wish them well and you go on, hey, welcome to the kingdom of God and you go to the next person. Very childish view of evangelism, but that's what I was taught. And if they bring up a certain thing in the conversation, well, then, you know, you counter it with this argument. And, and you know, you're, you're really trying to convince this person. You're trying to talk them into it. You're, you're closing the deal. You have to close the deal. And as I began to mature in my faith and my understanding of what the Bible says, I began to understand that, you know what? Saving souls is not so much me saving that person. It's God using me to give them the truth of the gospel. God does the saving. That changed my whole world when it came to evangelism. I mean, before that, I was riddled with guilt. If I knew somebody and shared Christ with them and then they died and I never was able to close the deal, oh my goodness, they're in, they're in hell and it's all my fault. It's ridiculous. That's ridiculous. That's not taught in the word of God. What's taught is we have a responsibility to bring the meal to the table. We can't force people to eat it. And so when we evangelize, we should really be counting that as a privilege. That we're taking the word of God that's sometimes hard to understand, as he says here. Therefore, you've got to study. You've got to put forth some effort. You can't just wing it. You can't just, you know point to a verse and say, well, I guess it means this, or I guess it means that. The words mean something. And what happens is people who are ignorant and unstable, what they do is they look at certain verses and they say, well, I don't know, let's, let's make it mean this. Because they want it to fit in their little box. A good, a good example of that is the doctrine of election. The doctrine of election is taught on practically every page of Scripture, and yet it's one of those things that's hard to grapple with. It's hard to understand. I had a guy take me out to lunch one time, and he put all the salt and pepper shakers in a row. He said, this represents my family. According to your theology, you're saying God chooses these people to go to heaven and those people to go to hell. I can't believe a doctrine like that. And I said, well, first of all, that's not what the doctrine teaches. We're, they're all going to hell. <laughs> okay, all your little families are on their way to hell, pal. It, it's out of God's grace that he maybe saves one or two of you or the whole lot. Who knows? But that's his call, not mine. Do I understand that? Do I understand why God would save me and maybe not a brother or sister of my own family or a neighbor? I don't understand that. I I could never begin to understand that. Why? Because it's hard to understand. But the one thing I'm going to refuse to do is take that doctrine and twist it because I'm ignorant and unstable and make it mean what it doesn't mean. And so logically, you could say, well, if God's got it all figured out, then why are we supposed to go out and evangelize? If God's going to save who he's going to save, who cares? If God's sovereign and he oversees everything, why do we even pray? You could become very fatalistic in your theology just like that. The reason that we pray is because why? God instructs us to pray. 
He knows what we're going to pray before it even comes out of our mouth. Why do we go out and witness to people? Because God instructs us to do that. Go into all the world and share the gospel with those who have yet to be saved. I mean, we have to be obedient. We don't have to understand everything. And so when it comes to the end times, there's all sorts of crazies out there teaching all sorts of everything because it's hard to understand. And people don't want to go near it. They just don't want to teach on it They don't because it's divisive. They don't want to teach on doctrine because that's divisive. So they're just easy to give you five little things for your family to make you happy and prosperous and, and home you go. You know, but the word of God is the word of God and we need to understand what it says. So he gives them a word of admonition here to study. I know it's hard to understand. It's difficult, but that's why he's given us his own personal copy so that we can look at it and we can study it. That's why he's given us the internet, so we can go on there and and find resources that are totally free to better understand the word of God. That's what he desires us to do. And all those things come under the idea that we'll, we'll be believing, we're waiting, we're ready for his return. Because those false teachers that he's been talking about, they twist and they, 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 they align, malign the word of God. They twist it to their own destruction, it says. Well, he also says here, third thing, to beware. He says in verse 17, You therefore... Notice, he's, he's more direct. His tone is kind of changed. Uh, first, uh, verse 14, he says, Therefore, beloved, since you're waiting for these things, but in verse 17, he, you can feel the intensity building. You, therefore, beloved, since you know this beforehand, what? These facts that I just shared with you, that he is returning, that you need to be without spot, without blemish, with, you need to be at peace. That you need to understand he's not coming back because there's still those that need to be saved. Knowing all that beforehand, he says, take care. Take care. It, It denotes kind of carefulness. That you're careful about something. Have you ever built a model? Or maybe, ladies, you've sewed something. You know, you don't just start grabbing fabric and cutting it and running it through the sewing machine and, and holding it up and go, oh, look what I just created. No. You have to get the, the uh, what do they call it, the pattern out. See, I've done some sewing. And you, you lay the pattern down, you know, the fabric, and you cut it all out, and there's little marks, and you've got to follow all that stuff, and then you cut the other piece, and you put them together, and you're very careful of the kind of stitch you use, all that kind of stuff, certain kind of thread. Or if you're building a, a model airplane or a, a model car, you don't just take the, the parts and throw some glue on a table and just glob them together. No, you've got to take them off the little attachment they're on and you file it down. You make it nice and neat. And then you paint each individual piece. You take the glue and you glue it together. You're careful. You take care with it. That's the idea here. It's not something that we, can, we, we do uh, carelessly. <laughs> And yet, so many times, when it comes to these things, we, we do it carelessly. It's almost like we don't care. Well, you know what? Church on Sunday, that's it. Bible sits on the shelf for another seven days, and I'll break it out next Sunday. That's not the indication of what, what Peter's telling us. He says, you better, you better take care. You better make sure that you're doing the right thing here. 
Because you have all the facts now. Knowing all this beforehand, take care. And then he says this, that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people. And lose your own stability. Who's he talking to here? He's talking to Christians. He's talking to Christians. You don't think Christians can get sucked up into cults and all sorts of weird religious beliefs? You bet you they can. That's why it's so important when someone teaches the word of God that they teach from the word of God. They teach the word of God in its context. We're here in this context. Yeah, we've jumped around a little bit, but we want to understand what this is saying, what Peter originally meant for his believers that he was writing to under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. What does it mean to them in their day, and what does it mean to us today? You can't really go wrong with that formula when you're studying the Word of God. He says, because you can be carried away with the error of lawless people. That's what these false teachers that we've been talking about the last several weeks before I left, all these false teachers, they don't have any law. They're lawless. They don't care what other parts of the Scripture say. They make up their own. Thus saith the Lord, God told me this. Well, what about over here in this book? It says this, that directly contradicts what you're saying. Don't question the Lord's anointed. I mean, that's their answer. It's just crazy. And that's how they get away with it. But really, they get away with it because people are not taking care. They're not listening. They're not discerning with their whole heart and with their mind and with the spirit saying, is this, is this right, what this person's saying? Or is it not right? One of the things we did right before we came home we went to church, I think it was called Church Falls. There, the, the Potomac, they have these rapids, these falls. just amazing. And there's people that actually go out there on kayaks, which is just crazy. But um, the water was kind of not real high, but it was still very, very, you know, the rapids were white water. And there was, uh, you know, signs everywhere, don't go down, don't go near the water. You know, you could die and, and everything. And one of the poles there where we were up probably 50, 60, maybe 100 feet off the, the bottom of the, where the rapids are, there's a pole there, and it had dates. And it had where water line was, where the water line was. It's just insane to think that the, the river, I mean, everything would be covered. I mean, I think the recent one was 90, 1990. It was just, you know, it was probably four feet high where we were standing way up above this thing. And they, all the signs said, Rapid current. Be careful. You'll just get swept away. Don't even stick your toe in the water. You, you don't understand what you're dealing with. That's kind of what the idea here is. Because you looked at that water and you say, oh, I could swim in that. It looks deceptive. And yet, so many times, we think, eh, you know, I'll just dabble in this little sin over here. It's, it's okay. It's not going to hurt anybody. And yet, God says, you know what? It could just sweep you away. Take care that you're not carried away with the error of these people who, who have no law. They're lawless. And as a result of that, you lose not your salvation, but your what? Stability. You lose your stability. 
You lose that stability that you should have in your life. The, the, you lose your steadfastness is another word. I mean, I don't know about you, but when I look around Christian Christianity and I see certain things, one thing I see definitely is instability. Not just in the church in general, but even in people's lives. There's a lot of unstable hearts and souls, even within the church. Even those that know Christ, they've lost that stability. They've become unstable. And we need to be reminded that that's not what we're called to live as. I mean, you know, we, we sing the hymn, A Firm Foundation, right? Christ has taken us out of the miry clay and it says he set our feet upon the rock. It's a stable environment. Be careful. Because your environment becomes very unstable, unestablished, unbalanced. As a result of not taking care and dealing with these erroneous, lawless people. I mean, the good news in that is that you know, you're, 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 still, you're still saved. But I don't think you're really enjoying that stability in your walk with the Lord. There's always that eerie feeling that something's going to get found out or whatever. That leads to instability. Verse 18, he says, but grow. The opposite of all that is what? Grow. Grow in your relationship with the Lord. Grow in your relationship with the knowledge of God's word. Grow in your relationship with God's people. It means to advance or increase. You know, to to prosper. What are we to grow in? He says, grow in the grace, first of all. The grace Don't ever forget that grace flows from God. That's where we get our grace. It doesn't flow from ourselves. It flows from God. I put four different examples of, of God's grace. God's saving grace. The fact that he saved you is purely a gracious act. Don't ever think that you deserved heaven. You deserve your sins to be forgiven. No. That's all by grace. It's unmerited favor. It means that you receive something without deserving it. God saved us, not because we deserve saving, but because he saw fit to put his love upon us and to give us that faith to believe, to cause us to repent of our sin. Even repentance is a gift from God. But also there's God's sovereign grace. That grace that oversees all the operations and all the plans and purposes in life. There's a grace involved in that. 
There's certain things that happen in your life that's a result of God's sovereign grace. It's not because of your intellect. It's not because of your giftings. It's not because of who you are or who you belong to or what kind of family you're from. No, it's just God's sovereign grace. Why didn't that happen to this person over here? I don't know. But it's God's sovereign grace. Think of God's sustaining grace. I mean, think if God said, yeah, I'll save you, and that's it. (laughs) You're on your own after that. If you mess up one time, you're going to hell. I'll save you, but don't sin again. Don't disobey my word again, ever. Or the deal's off. Aren't you thankful for God's sustaining grace? The grace that allows us to wake up every morning as the, the, the new dawn comes up and the sun comes up and we can think, you know what, this is a new day. Praise the Lord. We can be counting on God's sustaining grace. And then the last one there I just thought of is God's sovereign, uh, sufficient grace. His sufficient grace. You know that you're never going to run out of the grace that God gives us? I mean, that's what a blessing that is. We were back with the grandkids. We were playing with the Nerf, you know, those Nerf guns. And one guy was in the army, and he brought over a whole bag of these. I mean, it was like an arsenal. We had you know, discs and bullets and all sorts of things. And the, the kids were shooting, and they had these, like, uh, machine gun things. And they'd load these clips in there, like 30 things. <laughs> really neat. But they'd run out. They'd run out of ammunition, and then it was like everybody stopped. Oh, we got to reload. We've got to find all these bullets or discs or whatever. And they'd have the, kind of this lull in the battle, and then everybody reload, and then the battle would go back on. You know, it's neat to know that God's grace never will run out, ever. That it sustains us to the bitter end, glorious end. And that's what he says. He says, grow in the grace and then also in the knowledge, the idea that you're you're getting to know your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, more and more each day. I think some Christians treat Jesus Christ kind of like a bad neighbor. You know, maybe they say, say, hey, hello on Christmas or something like that once a year, and that's about it. Are you nurturing your, your, your knowledge, your relationship with the Lord on a daily basis, on a weekly basis? That's what he wants us to do. We should be growing in grace. You don't plateau, plateau off. You don't level off. You continue to grow in your grace and knowledge. And you continue to be molded and shaped more into the image of his son. And it's all about him. Look at the last verse. He wraps everything up in verse 18. He says, the end of 18, he says, To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. The idea is it doesn't matter if you start way back here or you go way in the future. It's all about him. It's all about Christ receiving glory in your life. And the only way that that can happen is if you're, you're being diligent and steadfast and, and being willing to be molded and shaped into that spotless, blameless servant that he wants you to be. And what a glorious thing that it's, it's only through the sacrifice of Christ that any of this is available to us. It's only through his death on the cross that we can come to a point in our lives and he can open our eyes and say, you know what? 
Now you can see the truth. Now you understand that you have a need of a Savior. Now, now you can repent of your sin. You can turn from your sin. You can turn to the Savior and ask him for forgiveness. And he'll transform your life. He'll make you a new person. Old things will pass away. Behold, all things will become new in Christ. What a wonderful thing. And it's all based upon his sacrifice on Calvary. I want to ask you this morning, have you put your faith, your trust in Christ? If you have, praise the Lord. But I follow that up with, are you being diligent in your Christian walk to be found in him without spot, blameless? Are you at peace with those in your family, in the, maybe your neighborhood, in the body of Christ? Are you at peace with your Lord and Savior? Let's bow in a word of prayer. Father, we pray before we come to our communion time that you would remind us of all that you've done on our behalf, all the sacrifice that you've made. Lord, it's not just a physical sacrifice. Yeah, you went to a cross and you were beaten and whipped and scourged and it was horrible. But that's just a small portion of what you went through on that day. That doesn't even speak to the spiritual element of what you suffered. The fact that the sinless Lamb of God, someone who committed no sin ever, was perfect in every way, divine, holy, pure, willfully took upon himself, allowed the sin of all those who would ever believe on his name to be laid upon him so that he might become sin for us and pay that price, that penalty. What an extreme sacrifice. Lord, we can't even fathom that. And Father, we thank you for it. And I pray that as we prepare our hearts for our communion time, Lord, we practice an open communion. You don't have to be a member of this church, but we would definitely expect you to be a member of Christ's body, that you're a Christian, that you're one who has repented of your sin and put your faith and trust in him. And these are not divine elements that we have here before us. It's just a, a cracker and a, a cup of juice, but it, what it represents is the full atonement for our sin. And so we thank you that we can partake together as the body of Christ. And if there's any here who's yet to put their faith or trust in Christ, who's yet to yield to the truth of the gospel, I pray that even now in the quietness of this moment, that their hearts would be stirred by your Holy Spirit, that they would be drawn to you, that you would reveal to them the peace that's available through Christ beyond our wildest expectations. Father, we pray you bless this time. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.